it's an incredible honor to be here. I keep thinking like that, that, that summer camp you guys just went to. I'm like, why? Because it's Christian, they have to get up at 7 a.m. Like, what happened to Christian summer camp where you sleep in? Yeah. Like, that's the camp I want to go to. Uh, uh, it, man, I, I love seeing what's happening here. Um, we do have a very kindred spirit when it comes to the way that we worship um, at, at Upper Room Dallas, Upper Room Frisco, and, and here in Rock City. So we, we've just moved back to Upper Room Dallas, and I, uh, or, well, I guess Upper Room Frisco now. Um, I feel like we've been playing catch-up ever since then because we hit the ground running with about 150, 200 people on day one. So I scrambled to, to hire a youth pastor, scrambled to hire a children's pastor. Uh, the admin was the easiest thing because she's my wife, and she's, a, she's an incredibly gifted admin. I would be sunk without good admin. Like, I am not administrative even a little bit. So, um, but it's been a lot of fun, and right off the bat, we've seen some, some really cool miracles. Um, when I think back on the beginning of Upper Rooms, I helped start that church as well, which made things very confusing, having two Michael Millers at the same church. And so, that, yeah, Hats is actually not my middle name. They call me that because I wear hats frequently, and I have tons of hats. I just try to look a little nicer when I show up at church on Sunday. Unlike some of you, what's going on here? Come on. I just said, that was a bad one. That was a bad I think it was just, There was a line, and I just, whoo, I passed it. Uh, no. Uh, uh, well, right off the very bat of starting that church, God uh, really honored us with his presence. Um, we saw, I think, within the first seven weeks, we saw three pairs of deaf ears open up. Um, one of them was a lady who was in her 80s. It was just, I mean, just amazing. And I've seen that miracles continue uh, throughout the duration of Upper Room, even on until, uh, I guess, in May, we saw there was a guy who was partially deaf who's been coming to the Upper Room for years. So everybody knows him. And uh, his ear got healed at our conference, which is just so cool. I mean, it's, it's one thing like when you see some stranger get healed because you're like, you know, but it's another thing when it's somebody you've known and watch them walk through an issue and suddenly it's gone. Like, I just love that. Um, one thing I'm never going to get sick of is seeing the miraculous. Um, I remember I made a decision early on when I started believing that God was healing, uh, which wasn't at the very beginning of my, my Christian walk, but... Uh, about seven years after I'd become a Christian, I started believing that God was doing miracles. And I made a decision that I would, I would waste my life on that thing. Um, and I didn't care what kind of fool I would look like. And I just sort of assumed, I made this, I started off with this going assumption, God wants to heal you. Uh, I figured if I died and went to heaven, he wasn't going to rebuke me for having too much faith. You know what I mean by that? Are going to get to heaven and be like, you know, you just thought I was better than I actually am. <laughs> you just thought I was healing too many people. Yeah, he's not going to do that, is he? He's not going to rebuke you for having too much faith. And so I, I've tried to adopt that attitude both personally in my life and for my community and everybody I minister to is just the underlying assumption that God wants to heal, um, largely just because he's a caring father. Um, I'll give you a little backdrop on who I am and where I've come from. Uh, yeah, my mom didn't, we didn't grow up here on the island. My mom lives here now, and, uh, but we grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I was born to a, a Jewish mother and a Mormon father. How many of you are very confused? <laughs> so was I. 
Uh, I am, in, in every sense, a spiritual mutt. Uh, I became a Christian when I was around 15 years old, largely because somebody gave me a Bible. Now, I had never read a Bible. I didn't know what a Bible was. Uh, I, I literally thought the Bible was a book of ancient spells and secrets, like witchcraft. And so when I got it, I, I was like, wow, it's got like mystical power. And it was one of those Bibles that had the Psalms and the Proverbs and then the New Testament. I didn't even know there was an Old Testament. So I, I took this thing home and I hid it in my desk because I didn't want my family to find out that I had a Bible. I don't know why I felt that way. I just felt that way. Like I was scared of what they would think. And every night I'd get it out and I'd start reading it. So after everybody went to bed, uh, and I would start memorizing the Psalms, uh, which isn't it funny, like when... That's something someone would do naturally. That they didn't, no, no teacher had to tell me, you should memorize the scriptures. Uh, so for me, I, I just thought it would impress girls. So I started doing it quite naturally. <laughs> uh, and then I would read uh, the Gospel of Matthew, since I thought that was the beginning. And I loved the book, Matthew. I, I thought, uh, how cool is this? It's about some Jewish guy who ran, went around and did miracles and said things that were completely backwards from everything I knew. You know, you would talk about, like, how many times should you forgive your brother from your heart? Seven times? I mean, seven times, that's a lot. Somebody stabbed you in the back seven times, you're kind of like, you know, you <laughs> keep some distance, right? And he's like, no, 70 times seven. In other words, as many times as you're offended, you should forgive your brother. Now, I'd never heard that. Now, in, in my upbringing, if someone hurts you, you hurt them back seven times as much. Like we, I knew how to hold a grudge. I was a professional at holding grudges. I should have gotten paid. I was so good at it. Uh, and here I am reading what Jesus said, and I just thought, man, I just want to be like him. It, to me, it was like, like Gandhi, you know, like he had this way of life. And I thought, I want to live the way of life uh, that Jesus lived. I didn't know at the time that early Christians were actually called followers of the way. Did you know that? And it's because they modeled their life largely off of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. Like that, to them, that's what it meant to be a Christian. You were a follower of the way, and it was a new way that Jesus had spelled out. The, the word Christian didn't come around until uh, probably 50 years later. Or maybe, no, that, that might be an exaggeration. Probably more like 20 or 30 years. Um, but early on, they were all called followers of the way. Uh, and I loved the miracles that I would read about. It read like a fantasy book, like sci-fi. And I was like, but people think this stuff is real. As a matter of fact, I had to go to church to find out God wasn't doing miracles. Isn't that weird? You would never, never come to that conclusion by reading the Bible. And then when I found out there was an Old Testament, I was like, what, there's more of this? See, I thought it was just the most exciting book I'd ever read. And I was 15 years old. Um, I, uh, I used to lie to my mom and uh, crash at my buddy's house on Saturday nights so that I could go to church with them on Sunday mornings. I don't know if she would have minded, but I was just too scared of what she thought. So I finally came out of the closet as a Christian when I was about 18 years old. Uh, but one of the things that the church did for me um, was it provided me with a family that was functional and healthy and would help me overcome the issues of life. Um, 
And in my home, like I said, my, my parents, two different religious backgrounds. But on top of that, when I was a year old, they divorced. And at age four, uh, even though my dad couldn't pay child support, uh, he remarried a woman who had six kids. And so from that day forward, I mean, it, it, you might as well like tattooed the word rejection over my forehead. Because all I knew is that my dad didn't love us enough to, to support us financially, and he'd rather raise somebody else's kids. I must not be worth loving. And, and that statement, that, that, that branding, I mean, it was just seared on my conscience. And it's all I knew growing up. Growing up. And so when I, when I finally became a Christian, uh, the church was one of the, the greatest places in the world for me to be. Because it provided me a, a family who would help point these things out. I remember early on, um, one of my first youth group meetings, the, the youth pastor saying, you know, Jesus had disciples, and, and he told those disciples to go make disciples, so all of you should get discipled. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I went to school the next day, and I thought, well, there's that Young Life guy who's always coming around. He knows more about the Bible than anybody. I'm going to get him to disciple me. And so next thing I know, I'm in this discipleship relationship where he's teaching me what it looks like to follow Christ. Um, this is what the church provided for me. You know what you don't, we, we tend to look at the, the scriptures and, and these guys who were the first disciples, and we think they all had it all figured out. But, but these guys were messy. Like, I mean, really messy. You ever you see that scene play out where, where uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, they, they pull up to Samaria, and they look at Jesus, and they go, Lord, would you like us to call down fire on these Samaritans? Surely it's in your will to you know, meet our, our racist desires. Isn't that wild? These were the apostles. Like, these were the guys that built the church. And we, we, we look at them like they had it all, they, you know, they did the miracles and they, 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 all the teachings they gave us. I mean, the, Paul the apostle, he was a murderer. Matter of fact, even post-Christ, uh, you see him having a conflict with Peter to the point where they're not even talking to each other. And, or uh, I think it was Barnabas too. Let me, I got it in my notes somewhere here. Let me see. Yeah, it was Barnabas. They split up because of a disagreement about John Mark. Isn't that wild? Like later on, Paul's opinion about Barnabas changes. Um, but this was stuff that was happening after the church had been developed. Um, now, I love the church. But I'll tell you what, the, the, the family that God created is not how I would have created it. Like I knew better than God or something. But, but I would have done it differently. I would have picked all the people I really enjoyed and got along with and put them in a group together and say, this is the church. But you know what? How many of you know you don't choose your family? When God, when he, when he baptized you in his spirit, he, he immersed you in the waters of, of spirit and power. And when you came out, you were in this mysterious thing called the body of Christ. And again, you didn't choose who else was going to be there. Uh, God did. You were immersed in Christ and you came out and all of a sudden you now have insta-family. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, how many of you know about Azusa Street and what happened to the Azusa Revival? If you look at, uh, there's a really great book called Spreading Fires, and it documents what happened at Azusa and, and subsequent movements since then. But, but it was like the, the it put Pentecostal, Pentecostalism on the map. I mean, that church, it is today the fastest growing denomination in the world. Um, but, 
But you'll, today, you'll see some different doctrines about that. They, today, people will say that the baptism of the Spirit is evidenced by speaking in tongues. You'll actually see that on the Assembly of God webpage under their doctrines. That's actually not what they thought in, uh, during Azusa Street. Do you know what they thought the baptism of the Spirit did? Uh, racial reconciliation. Because it was the first time in the United States that you saw... Uh, um, Blacks and whites worshiping together in unity, where, where socioeconomic barriers were completely torn down, and the body of Christ looked like the body of Christ. You know, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And, and I would say that there's some credence to that. There's a good reason to believe that, that the baptism of the Spirit is supposed to bring about racial reconciliation. Because when you look at Acts chapter 2, who all was there at Pentecost? Everybody. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God was taking all of the different nations and bringing them back together and making them one new man. Um, you look specifically at some of the apostles, you, you see some interesting things. Like, again, I, I never would have done this. I, I, I would have done it differently. But Jesus, you know, he decides to pray and get a strategic uh, plan together on which disciples to recruit. Prayer is probably a good thing. How many of you would agree with prayer is a good thing? So he decides to get together this one guy named uh, Simon, who's also called the Zealot. Now, how many of you know what a Zealot is? A few of you. Well, let me just give you some background on a Zealot. Uh, the Zealots were a specific group of Jews who believed that they needed to overthrow the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire were technically the, the occupiers of, uh, of Israel. The, they had destroyed and sort of decimated the Israeli people and was now their overlords. And so these zealots wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. Not only that, but they were known for their zealousness, which would make sense given the title zealot. Meaning that uh, these guys wouldn't just you know, try to, to hurt their Roman oppressors, but even hurt those who would help their Roman oppressors. So they were known for taking like bits of, of bone and shards of glass and making little makeshift knives and sticking them in the sides of anybody who would help out the Roman Empire. And they were a, a bloodthirsty group of people. Uh, here's Jesus' strategic plan. I'm going to take Simon the Zealot and I'm going to put him together. And he probably sent these two out when he, when he sends the 12 out in pairs. He goes, I'm going to put him together with Matthew, a tax collector. Those two should not be in a room together. Do you know what a tax collector did? He served the Roman Empire by collecting taxes, unjust taxes, from the Jewish people. He was a Jewish person who had basically betrayed his own people by, by stealing money off the top of these taxes and helping enforce uh, a, a very unjust tax system. And so Jesus thinks, I'm going to put Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector together. And guess what? Now you're family. So you don't choose your family. But I'll tell you what, if the power of Jesus works, if it really does, then those two become best friends. And the crazy thing is it did work because we are now the offspring of what that movement started. And it's family that you're going to need that's different than you, that's going to help you overcome the issues of your life. Um, I say this because that's what happened to me. 
One of the biggest uh, um, struggles in my life was this issue of rejection and abandonment. And I remember when we kicked off the upper room, we were probably two, three years in, and I had a major moral failure. Do you know what it was? Now, I call it a major moral failure because it was a major moral failure. I gave in to fear. Now, see, most of us don't look at it that way, but when you think about it, how many times in the scriptures does it say the words, do not fear? Not a polite suggestion, is it? It's a command, right? But for me, my fear of rejection would cause me to do and make the most idiotic mistakes. When it came to relationships, I would see this, this rejection play out. Uh, and it would usually happen when I started dating a girl, maybe three months in. I would reject her because she liked me. And in my head, if she liked me, well, there must be something wrong with her. Because I know how much I'm not worth loving. See, it's weird, isn't it? It's a bit sadistic. It's a guaranteed way to stay single. And so I would always reject the one who actually loved me because I thought something must be wrong with them for them to be so head over heels over me. And I would chase the one who was always walking away. And you can see like the relationship with my father being played out all over again, always chasing the person who walked away. And I would eventually fall into uh, smothering or manipulation to try to control this other person to keep them in the relationship with me. Well, three years into the upper room, I sabotage another relationship where I'm trying to control this person. And I am in such a miserable place. Now, I was going to marry this girl. I had already asked her family. I, I was, I mean, I was ready. And I sabotaged this relationship, and I was in the worst condition. Because to me, my life and my self-worth were defined by other people's beliefs about me. If someone thought I wasn't worth loving, they were right. They just caught on to what I had always known about myself. And the closer I got to marriage, the more that fear would come out. Because think about it this way. When you get closer to somebody, what do you start being afraid that they're going to see? What you already believe about yourself to be true, right? So um, I remember my roommate at the time, we, we had broken up. The relationship had just gone. I, I, I had, had been been completely blown away. Um, I am as depressed and hopeless as I can be. My roommate is actually hiding the knives because he doesn't want me to do something to myself. Some of you are laughing. You're like, yeah, that was me. Uh, <laughs> um, that's where I was at. I mean, here's, here's what it boiled down to. I needed the family that I was in to help me begin to reconcile some of these bad beliefs I had about myself. It's a really great passage of scripture. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I think you can put it up there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. It says, For though we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but they are made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. Now, it says that we've been given powerful weapons to tear down strongholds. Don't you think it'd be important to know what a stronghold is in order to tear it down? Well, here's what it is. Paul elaborates. He says, we tear down arguments. We tear down arrogant obstacles 
that, is, that are raised up against the knowledge of God, we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. What is a stronghold? A stronghold is a thought pattern that takes place in your mind. That thought pattern is, is something contrary. It's against Christ. It's against the knowledge of God. In my case, my thought pattern, this stronghold of my mind was, you are not worth loving. Now that is called knowledge that's raised up against the truth, against the knowledge of God. Because what is the knowledge of God? Well, the knowledge of God tells you this, you are worth loving. How do you know? Well, we know something's worth by what someone will pay for it. For instance, if there's a a Van Gogh and somebody buys it for $1.2 million, what is that Van Gogh worth? $1.2 million. We know something's worth by what someone will pay for it. What did the Father pay for you? The blood of his Son, who is an infinite being. This is going to sound like sacrilege when I say this. Hear me, church. Everybody, if you have ears to hear, listen to what I'm about to say. You are worth the blood of Jesus. To believe anything other than that is to say to the Father, your son's blood wasn't worth much. Any of you want to say that to him? See, the thing is, this thing you were not worth loving was a lie. It came from the pit of hell, and it was meant to destroy my life. Like it or not, the enemy has been doing this since day one with each one of you the day you were born. He's had an agenda and an assignment to tear you apart, to get you to believe things, to create strongholds in your mind that would cause you to have a thought pattern that's raised up against the knowledge of Christ. And you're actually going to need each other to get free from this. When I was finally going through the process of changing the way I thought, learning how to take these thoughts captive, I remember I had three of my buddies from the church on speed dial at all times. I remember when Sarah and I started, started dating, uh, I, would, I would call my buddy up and be like, hey, I need you to help me process something that's going through my head. I'm so full of, of uh, depressing emotion and hopelessness. He's like, well, what happened? I said, well, I texted my girlfriend and she didn't text me back. And he was like, well, how long has it been? I was like, well, five minutes. You see, it was a trigger point for me. It was reinforcing that message, you're not worth loving. She's getting closer to you. She's starting to find out what kind of scum you really are. Right? I had, I had to have them on speed dial to help me make sense of these things. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. It's not an earthly battle, it's a spiritual one. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You think you're worthless, you're going to live a worthless life. Until you begin to take that thing captive. You bring it down below the feet of Jesus and you destroy it. Um... I used to hate this. When I was in the midst of my depression, I'd have people come up to me and quote scriptures to me, uh, thinking that that would help me feel better, right? 
Uh, like one of them was, uh, I think it's out of the Psalms, where it says, in him is fullness of joy. Like in the midst of my depression, somebody comes up to me and says that. I just want to punch people like that. <laughs> in him is fullness of joy. Right? Oh, come on. I know I'm not the only one. Some of you felt, yeah, preach it, brother. <laughs> I see you. Uh, the other one they would quote is, uh, the truth will set you free, which gr- great way to heap condemnation and shame on top of a person who's already depressed. <laughs> truth will set you free, brother. You know, it's crazy. As we all know that that stuff's true. In him is fullness of joy. Truth really, really will set you free. Problem with that truth passage is most people leave out the first half of it. Do you know what the first half of that verse is? It says, then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Hold on a second. Now, I could have told you at this point in my life, I was, I was, a, I was teaching in churches. Uh, I had probably more scripture memorized than most of my friends did. Actually, I had, I had memorized the whole book of James in college. So when it comes to having the truth, I had plenty of it lodged away in some little compartment of my mind where it can do no transforming work in your heart. You see, it says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To know the truth is much more than just having facts stored away in your brain. To know the truth means you've had an intimate experience with it. You see, uh, that word, know the truth, it's actually a semantic term. It's it's used when uh, Adam and Eve got together. It says, then Adam knew Eve. What do you think it's talking about? Yeah, I heard somebody just say it. Was that you? Someone, someone hummed, stole my joke. What was it? What does it mean that he knew Eve? Bound, chicka, bound, bound. Right? He had an intimate experience with her. To know the truth is like this it means you've had an intimate experience with a person named Jesus who loves you. I, need, I needed an intimate account, encounter with the God who paid the life of his son for me. When I, so I would start memorizing these, these passages of scripture that were like, um, God will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. But instead of just having it lodged up here, I would begin to meditate on that verse thinking like, what does it mean to me that he'll never leave me? What does it mean to me that he loves me just the way I am? that I'm worth the blood of Jesus. You see, it's that kind of thing that's transformative. That's why in Romans 12, uh, 2, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed. Well, how are you transformed? By the renewal of your mind. Now, some versions will read this. They'll say, then you will know what the will of God is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. But that's actually not what it says. It says, then you will prove what the will of God is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. You will prove what his will is. How, am I, how do I know I'm worth loving? Let me prove it to you. How do I know God wants to heal you? Let me prove it to you. Be healed. Then you will prove what the will of God is. No more questions as to what his desire is. Once your mind has been renewed, once your thoughts are in line with his thoughts, you're not asking him what's your will anymore. You're proving it to the world around you. Um. One of the greatest comforts I took was this passage from Proverbs 24. It says that a righteous man falls seven times but gets back up again. 
What's comforting to me about that verse is it, it tells us that it's not what we fall into that will ever define us. It's getting back up from that thing. God does not define you by your sin. He doesn't define you by your shortcomings. He defines you by your willingness to get back up and overcome. Now, one of the greatest comforts, now I'll tell you this, one of the biggest hangups first, biggest hangups I had to getting free from this issue of my heart was the fact that I'd seen so many miracles. I know that sounds strange. It's ironic, it really is. I had seen so many miracles that I just thought God was only doing the instantaneous work. That this issue of my heart, this, this, this rejection and fear of abandonment, and I knew it was an issue. Like I knew I'd sabotaged enough relationships at some point to figure out like, hey, there's something going on in my heart that's off. I knew there was something off. My problem was, is I expected him to deal with that issue of my heart the same way I had expected him to deal with all the hurting bodies. Instantaneous, zap it away. But he didn't do that. And one of the, the, the patterns in scripture that actually uh, gave me hope that this, I wouldn't have to live with this, that even if God didn't just zap it away, that it could change, my life could be different, were the letters written to the seven different churches in Revelations. In the revelation of the Christ, uh, John is going to have, through Jesus, he's going to write a letter to seven different churches, and this one repeated phrase is, is, is repeated to each one of these churches. It's this phrase, to him who overcomes, I will give. Check this out. Notice, notice in there, to him who overcomes, I will give. No promises of deliverance. No promises of instantaneously setting them free. A promise of a great reward for having overcome great difficulties. Good. Now, how many of you uh, like the promises of God? Anybody ever read one of those little books, The Promises of God? Yeah? yeah? How many of you like that book? It's a good book, right? <laughs> promises of God. You know one of the promises I find in Scripture that I never found in one of those books? In this life, you will have trials. How come they don't tell us this? In this life, you will have trials, but take heart, I have overcome this world. No promise of deliverance, promises of rewards for having overcome. Let's read the first letter. This is uh, Ephesians, or sorry, sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. This is the Ephesian church. It says, to him who overcomes, he will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I don't know what that thing tastes like, but it's probably good. The people of Smyrna were told that they were going to be thrown into prison. Some were being asked to be faithful unto death. Check this out. So Peter gets thrown into prison. He gets released. But to the church in Smyrna, they're going to be thrown into prison. Some of them are going to lose their lives. No promise of deliverance, but a promise of reward. Check this. But to him who overcomes... He will not be hurt by the second death. Pergamum. This one I kind of geek out about because I like this kind of trivia. In Pergamum, we're told that uh, the throne of Satan was there. Jesus actually calls this altar that was built to Zeus that was in Pergamum, which is modern-day Turkey, he calls it the throne of Satan. little interesting fact is that when Hitler was at the height of his power, he had that monument brought over from Turkey to Berlin and rebuilt brick by brick. 
So Hitler, at the height of his power, had the throne of Satan in Berlin. Why is nobody else as creeped out by that as I am? Isn't that crazy? So we were told that this is the epicenter of uh, uh, Satan worship. We're told that they followed the uh, teachings of a false teacher who would lead people to eat food sacrificed to idols and according to Clement of Alexandria, commit strange acts of sexual immorality. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on it, which no one knows but he who receives it. I don't know what this stuff is, but I know it's good. Church in Theatira says, many gave into a teaching by self-reclaimed prophetess who Jesus calls Jezebel. We're told that she taught the deep things of Satan. Isn't such an arrogant thing? The deep things. We want the deep things. Mm. <laughs> deep things of Satan. She encouraged sexual morality. To him who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. I will give him the morning star. See, this stuff is cool. Sardis, this is probably my favorite. They were known for their good deeds, but they never experienced the power of God to see transformation. They held to a form of godliness. And I would say our country is quickly becoming that, holding on to a form of godliness. To him who overcomes, he will be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, this one I understand. This one is cool. Think about this. When it says, I will confess his name, this is Jesus speaking. He's going to confess this person's name in front of the Father and in front of the angels. Now, that word angel doesn't really do it justice. Because when you think about the kind of creatures that he's referring to, these kind of creatures carried such a measure of glory that, that John himself was tempted to worship. And Jesus isn't singing their praises. He's singing yours. What's your name? Joe. Joe. Come here, Joe. Let me show you what this is like with Joe. Uh, now, let's pretend that I'm Jesus, naturally. Uh, <laughs> let's pretend I'm Jesus. Joe has just entered into glory. I'm now presenting Joe to the Father. Father, I've got something to, to, to show you. Um, it's my friend Joe. On the earth, many people ask the question, why does Joe keep falling into this sin or that sin? Why does he keep falling into this thought pattern or that thought pattern? They had no idea what Joe had to overcome. I'm going to make that known now. And Father, I'm here to present you this person because all of those difficulties that he'd struggled in life with, the things that people made fun of him for, he overcame. You see, God wants bragging rights over you. If he had zapped away every problem that you'd have, if he just zapped it away, would he get to do this? He wants to present you as an offering to God. He wants to brag about you to the Father, the creator of all things. This is my son. Look at what he's overcome. 
Now, ever taken a, a test before? Anybody ever failed at a test? <laughs> Best news is, in the kingdom, he will let you fail that test over and over and over again. Do you know why? Because he actually believes you're capable of passing it. Come on. Does God ever believe something that's not true? No. So if God believes you're, you're able of overcoming the certain trials in your life, what does that say about what you're able to do? Overcome the trials of your life. You see, if you weren't capable, he'd stop giving you that test. Now, some of us, and this is me in particular, you can grab a seat. Everybody give Joe a round of applause. Thank you, Joe. I had gotten to the point with my rejection of, uh, my fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, where I was so ready to give up. The thoughts that played out in my head were, you'll never overcome this. This will be with you your whole life. You're going to have to manipulate some girl into following, falling in love with you. Isn't that crazy? But the thing is, God let me fail over and over again, one relationship after the next, because he actually believed in me. Does God ever believe something that's not true? So when he says that he believes that you're capable of overcoming the trials of your life, what does that tell you about you? See, there's no more room for hopelessness. Because God, like it or not, contrary to what you may believe, he's right. The next church, the Philadelphians said they had persevered and held fast to what they'd been taught. I love this because it's a church he's bragging about already. It says, their reward seems assured. To him who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name. That first part is so cool. How many of you remember what it was like when you first believed? Anybody? Do you remember what it was like, like his presence was so tangible and so real? Do you remember that? If you're made a pillar in the temple, if that's the reward for you, you're going to feel that the rest of eternity. Because you have now stepped into a place where you no longer have to enter or leave his presence. You're there in his presence constantly. Pillars are meant to last. It's a permanent place of God's presence. The Laodiceans, which we get compared to the most here in the West, were told that they were lukewarm. To him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. There are positions of honor that are waiting for those who have overcome the greatest of difficulties. Many of you can look at me and say, you know, Michael, you don't understand what I've come from. You're right, I don't. But I do know the worse it was, the greater the reward yeah. for overcoming it. Yeah. Your reward is in direct proportionate to how difficult your trials have been. Good. And the thing is, he actually believes you can overcome. And realize, we're all getting to heaven. This isn't about, this isn't about salvation. This isn't about a relationship with Jesus. We all get that. But there are differences in the rewards and the experiences we'll have when we get there. 
And it's all played out right now. Right now is the best opportunity you have for God to get the bragging rights of your life. Um, I, I told you guys I love miracles. I love healings. I, that, that's my thing. I want to pray for you, but, but the thing is I can't pray for this. I, can't, I don't want to pray that God would zap it away in this case. Now, there are a lot of things we're going to pray for God to zap away. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to this, this thing that you know what it is, I don't have to tell you. You know already. What I want you to do is own it. I want you to stand up in full confidence knowing that God believes in you, and I want you to own this trial and commit yourself before God to overcome this difficulty. Because you are the only one who can overcome for you. What good is a test that you've passed when someone else took it for you? See, when you get to heaven and he's bragging your name, and he starts sharing about all the things you've done, you're going to stand there. And it's not going to be this, this like, oh, please don't say these nice things about me. You know why? Because you're going to know that what he's saying is true. Only you know the difficulties you've gone through. And when he brags about you and how you overcame it, you know. You remember what it was like taking that test. You remember what it was like when you passed that test. And you're going to stand there just as proud of yourself as he is of you. Finally, your thoughts have lined up to his. All right. Uh, here's how I'm going to do this. I want everybody to stand up. I got serious because I'm on a stage, Right? I want you to close your eyes. I want you to stand upright. I want you to repeat after me. God, I'm proud of who I am. Because you didn't die for a mistake. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm worth the blood of your son. Today I commit myself to overcoming the trials in front of me. Today I'm claiming who I am in Christ. And I am an overcomer. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. Oh, it feels good, huh? <laughs> Come on.